0: not proud but-
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide or the newly released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. My guest today is Seattle Journal. Erica Barnett. Erica is an award-winning political reporter who has written for a variety of local and national publications. She now covers addiction, housing, poverty, and drug policy at her blog, The Sea is for Crank. Erica herself is a woman in recovery whose long and winding path to sobriety is the subject of her new book, Quitter, a Memoir of Drinking, Relapse, and Recovery, which is out tomorrow from Viking. And Erica joins me today from Seattle. Erica, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you, Jean. It is so nice to have you here today. Your, your book opens with you waking up broken and bleeding, too hungover and or drunk, to go and clean out your desk at the job from which you've been fired. And it's a rock-bottom moment by any definition, but... You tell us that it's your fourth or fifth rock bottom and you've quit many times, but as the old saying goes, quitting isn't the problem, it's staying quit. So in light of all that, (laughs) I'm happy that you're here to tell your story and shine your light because a lot of people don't make it through the physical effects of that long, extreme alcoholism that you survived. So you're really a miracle, Erica,
2: and I'm just so glad you're here. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, my book begins um, with one of many, many rock bottoms that um, that I uh, experienced in my uh, very low-bottom alcoholism, you know, just to sort of set the stage a little bit. Um, I didn't really start drinking in earnest and heavily until I was well into my 30s, which I think, you know, seems a little atypical, but is actually pretty common for women, um, I discovered while researching the book. Um, i uh, I grew up in a pretty religious household until I was about seven and honestly didn't really know anybody who drank alcohol at all until um, probably in my early teens um, it just wasn't a part of my own upbringing in any way. And um, I started drinking, like a lot of, I think, girls in particular do, around 13, um, really uh, because of insecurity and suburban boredom and all the reasons that I think kids often start experimenting with drinking and doing drugs. But um, my my real drug of choice, because it was the 90s, um, was LSD, uh, which we did all the time um, through high school, you know, me and my friends. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't really enjoy drinking that much, but, um, I did sort of have this compulsion to, when I did drink, get extremely drunk, extremely fast. I mean, there's never like a middle ground for me. Um, and, um, I quit drinking actually when I was in high school, cause I started dating this guy and I described the story in the book. Um, this guy who was just very judgmental about it, you know, and said it made me weak and, um, I um I wanted approval and drinking was part of wanting approval and quitting when I was you know in high school around the age of 16 17 was also part of wanting approval and I didn't drink through college I was like a hyper achiever um I got really good grades I worked I you know I worked my butt off in college and after college and I felt pretty strongly that drinking or Kind of even just engaging in like leisure activities and being a kid um, and being a young adult um, was not going to get me where I wanted to be. I moved out to Seattle. I worked at an alternative weekly in Austin um, called the Austin Chronicle, which was a bit of a drinking culture. And I worked with Sarah Heppola, who wrote the great book Blackout at the Chronicle, and um, it was definitely a drinking culture that I participated in to some extent, but. Really, I got through most of my 20s, um, moved to Seattle, um, started a job out here, got another job at a publication called The Stranger, which is kind of at the time was kind of the coolest alt weekly in the country, um, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion. And that is when my drinking really got underway. And I um, just kind of, you know, I would say that the culture of alternative weekly journalism at the time and the culture of journalism and politics in general, at least in Seattle, really, really revolved around drinking. Um, You didn't go out for coffee. I mean, that concept was like totally unfamiliar to me until I actually quit drinking and started inviting people out for coffee. And it felt very awkward. You went out for drinks. Um, And again, like a lot of people, I mean, I drank because I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, I felt like I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't, you know, smart or clever enough. I just couldn't sort of meet the standards that I felt the world wanted me to meet. And the thing that made me feel more comfortable was having a few drinks. And Unfortunately, you know I have this genetic predisposition or whatever you want to call it that um, made it made it the case that I became addicted pretty quickly and pretty hard and uh and so you know then then began you know what the big book calls the the cycle of um uh, i think um, institutions uh I can't remember the exact phrase but I, but I remember really feeling it that I was. In this cycle from which I could not escape, um, I went to my first detox when I was uh, in my early 30s in 2008, and um, and I really thought at the time that that was all that was going to be necessary. That you know I was essentially going in for a hard reset was was how I thought of it. And I was dating a guy at the time who was also a very very heavy drinker, self identified alcoholic. And, um, and that was a very toxic situation I think to be in, but, um, but I thought that if I went to this detox and I was there for five days and I cleared all the alcohol out of my system, then I would have the willpower to accomplish, uh, you know, sobriety or, or I don't even think I thought of it as sobriety. I just thought of it as a return to normal life. And um, because I had always been able to do everything I ever wanted through willpower alone. Um, I had gotten a job when I was uh, under 21 as an editor in Austin right out of college. I had gotten a job in Seattle and moved there and convinced a boyfriend to move there with me and um, become financially independent at the age of 19 when I was in college. And just everything had gone along a path, and so I thought, well, if I just quit, then it'll be fine. And of course, that's not how addiction works. Um, it is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I think baffling um, was the was the the operative word there for me because when I relapsed the first time, there was absolutely no reason, there was no trigger, there was no. Um, it wasn't a bad day, it wasn't a good day, I wasn't celebrating, I wasn't mourning. I just thought, hey, maybe I can drink now. And um, and so the next five years or so kind of went like that. I would um, start going to AA meetings and um, decide that I didn't need them. Or I you know, would start going to therapy and decide that I had learned everything I needed to learn. Um, And the way it usually happened was I would quit for a little while. I'd start feeling really good because what happens when you quit physically, your body just, you know, I mean, you know, this gene, it just, is. it can be like an amazing transformation, especially if you have suffered a lot from the, um, the physical effects of drinking as I did. I mean, I just, I felt great. I was like, wow, I'm not hungover. And for me, it wasn't even hungover, to be honest. It was like, I just felt like crap all the time. When I woke up, I had an immediate need for alcohol. Um, and I drank all day at the end. Um, and it was, uh, it was just constant physical and mental misery. So when I quit, I would feel great. And then eventually I would just decide I didn't need to be quit anymore. And it, and it, and calling a decision is actually overstating it. I, it would just be like the vodka would land in my cart at the grocery store. And, uh, and I wouldn't know how it got there. And then we'd be off to the races again. And, uh, and so this, this went on and on and this, just this endless cycle. Um, and every time it would get a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and sometimes it would get a little bit better. And um, when I talk about rock bottoms and and the rock bottom I hit in the first um, episode I described in the book, it was, there are so many examples like that, that when I was writing the book, my editor actually um, cut quite a bit out because it was getting repetitive, which I think really describes the life of a late stage alcoholic. It's incredibly repetitive. So the instance I describe in the book is um, when I got off the train Um, Well, I got fired from my job um, and I um, was going to pick up my stuff. I got very, very drunk, um, came back home from picking up my stuff at the office or picking up some of my stuff at the office because I was asked to leave because I was so drunk. Um, And getting off the train, falling down on my face, you know, pants falling, you know, down to my butt, you know, lying on the ground in the Seattle, pouring rain. And just wondering if I would make it home or if, you know, I would die in the bushes and the headlines would be about, you know, failed writer, um, with, with show, showed so much promise, but died of alcoholism on the sidewalk outside her house. Um, and, uh, and that was, that was just like, it's, it's sad to describe that event as typical, but the stuff that I cut from the book were, were things like, you know, f- falling off the bus and cutting my leg. I still have a scar from that. Um, You know, just day after day of these sort of individually terrible rock bottom-y instances that just didn't make me quit. And and so I think, you know, one of the messages that I am trying to convey in the book is that um, if you, we like to think of this idea that there is an identifiable rock bottom, for every alcoholic and every addict. And I think that that is true for some people and particularly people who don't end up relapsing as I did over and over again. But I think that the more typical situation is that we have many rock bottoms and we can sort of come in post facto and say, well, that last rock bottom, that was the worst. And that was the real rock bottom. But for me, what happened is I got fired from my job Oh, and this is something I actually do describe in the book. And this is a pretty good rock bottom, but it, it isn't my rock bottom because it's not when I quit. Um, I, uh, I got fired from my job after showing up drunk for, for many weeks on end. Um, and frankly, you know, they had been extremely patient with me. I had gone to rehab once, gotten out, relapsed, and come back to work. Um, I passed out in the bathroom at work. Um, Not once, but twice on two successive days. And um, the next Monday morning, I came in and they fired me, um, which sounds like a rock bottom. But what happened was I went to rehab again. I uh, did not stay sober. That was in November of 2014. Uh, I didn't have a job. My family had more or less given up on me at that point. Uh, My best friend... um, who I write about a lot in the book, had more or less given up on me. And I had given up on myself. And when I got sober, and this is five, almost five and a half years ago now. Actually, um, today, um, when this podcast comes out, it'll be five and a half years. It was just on an ordinary day, which for me at the time meant I was unemployed. I would get up. I would feel like crap. I would probably throw up. And then I would walk to the store and buy a bottle of something and drink until my hand stopped shaking uh, and then go home and pass out and get up and go to the store and do it again until the end of the day when I would pass out for the night. So I woke up after one of those nights and for some reason or no reason or, you know, a miracle or whatever you want to call it, I just said to myself, you know what, this is a day like I'm done. And I don't know where that thought came from. I, I truly don't. And I don't know where it comes from for anybody, but I had that internal motivation to change that I had never had before. And at that moment, I decided I was going to call around to to detoxes until I got in. And if I got into one and I had to wait, um, and this is something I'd never done before, you know, I said, that's fine. I'll wait. I'm going to do this though. And if it's not today, then it's going to be tomorrow, but I am ready. I got into the detox, (laughs) um... Didn't have any uh, any friends to take me there anymore, or at least I certainly wasn't going to ask anybody. Got a cab, and the the place was a place I had been before because I went to detox a bunch of times, and I also went to a lot of emergency rooms for emergency detox. Um, so I got a cab, went to this place. It was out of town. Um, it was about a $90 cab ride. Tried to charge it on my credit cards. Of course, all my credit cards were um, were overdrawn at that point, and none of them went through begged the cabbie to, you know, let me out of the cab without, um, putting up, you know, a, making a big scene. And I wrote a post-dated check for $150 said, you can catch this on such and such a date. Cause I had unemployment benefits coming in, uh, went to detox, stayed there as long as I could, as long as they would let me, which was, um, uh, believe about six days and came out, went to a meeting and, um, the compulsion to drink, um, You know, I won't say it lifted like like there was like a beam of light and angels were shining down on me and blessing me with the miracle of no desire to drink again ever. But it lifted to such a significant degree that I didn't feel compelled to let that bottle of vodka fall in my cart again, which is um, which had always been the problem, just kind of the casual relapse of, of not, of not paying attention and not trying and not really being vigilant. And I never, I, since that day, and i i don't want to say like, I am sober forever now, because I think relapse can happen at any time. And I've seen it happen to people, you know, after 20 years, after 30 years, after five years, which is where I'm at right now. Um, but the compulsion was lifted in a way that I never thought was possible for me. I would go to AA meetings and people would talk about, you know, being happy, joyous, and free or whatever. And I just thought that was ridiculous. Um, and I thought they were lying. And, um, and I thought that the idea that the compulsion could be lifted was also a lie. And, um, and then it happened. And I think that it is entirely due to just some ineffable, ineffable um, change that is entirely internal. Um, when it happened to me, it, has never, it has never gone back to the way it was. And I've never felt the way I felt when I got up every single day and had to drink to stop the shakes. Um, there have been times, especially in very early sobriety when I was tempted to, um, to, to drink, um, you know, I do work in a very alcohol oriented, uh, field and there's lots of happy hours or there were before the pandemic. Um, of course now we have zoom happy hours, which I, is a little easier to avoid, but you know, I would, uh, after about, I would say six months or so, I started going to bars again for events. And, um, I, uh, I did that after I was pretty well convinced that I wouldn't have that compulsion anymore. So it took about six months and, I did other stuff in the meantime. I had really avoided AA in particular. I think that, um, you know, it's not right for all people. Um, I don't think any program is right for all people. And I don't think that necessarily abstinence is right for all people, but it's incredibly important for me. And I did a lot of stuff i went to th- treatment i mean i learned a ton uh about um at one treatment facility i went to the first one i learned a ton about what not to do and um that treatment center revolved around um a lot of shame and guilt and really making you feel like you uh your problem was that you'd never taken personal responsibility for anything and i knew that wasn't true about me i mean i i really tried And I really, um, had spent my whole life taking personal responsibility for things. And guess what? It doesn't cure the disease of alcoholism to feel a sense of personal responsibility. In my second treatment center, I really learned that there, this is kind of where I realized that there's no such thing as rock bottom except for death, because I saw people who went to treatment, got out and, um, generally um, used opiates, um, which are really deadly if you relapse and use the same amount you were using before and they died. And like that, that happened several times in the one month I was in treatment. So, you know, I learned a lot at every, at every stage when I got out, I said, you know what, fine. I'm just going to do AA because nothing else has worked. And this seems like the most annoying, difficult Time consuming program, but guess what? I don't have a job. I don't have anywhere else to be during the day. And if I don't have a little bit of structure in my life, who knows what's going to happen? So I did the program. Or I, I, mean, I won't say I did the program because you're never done with the program, right? <laughs> but, um, but I, but I, but I went through the steps and I actually did them, and I, you know, I started clearing away the wreckage of my past and I started making amends to people. And these are like, and I, w- what I came to realize about AA that I think you don't know when you go in is that so much of this program is um, is incredibly useful for anyone particularly the stuff around figuring out what your resentments are and figuring out your part in them, which may be that you were just there. You know, it may be just, I was present when that um, abusive person came into my life and that I'm not to blame for that. So that might be your part, but figuring out your part in them and then making amends where you can. Um, I think that is so useful just for regular everyday people without addiction problems or any of the problems that we go into AA, you know, sometimes reluctantly like me to deal with, um, it made my life so much better. And also just, um, acknowledging the harm I had caused to people because I, I knew in a very guilt and shame based way that I had hurt people and I felt really bad about it, but I felt powerless because I felt like, well, there's nothing I can ever do about that. But um, what amends do and what I really um, enjoyed about making amends, and I certainly haven't made all of them yet, but what I really enjoyed was the fact that at the end of it, you get to ask the person, what can I do to make this better? And so it isn't about me deciding what I want to do for another person, or this is how I can help you. It's saying, how do you want to be helped? And how do you um, want me to do the work of improving our relationship? So that um, so that we can move on, and again, I mean, I I sometimes feel sorry for people who don't at least have a little bit of the program. And I'm not talking about alcoholics and addicts. I'm talking about just people in general, because um, it, it it just contains so many good tools for living around other people in the world, and it provided a lot of discipline that I did need in my life and that I didn't realize I needed, um, and a lot of facing things that I didn't want to face. That was enormously useful. My theory of AA, uh, by the way, is just that it's um, very disorganized cognitive behavioral therapy done by non-professionals over a long period of time. Just so many of the tools that I learned in going to cognitive behavioral therapy are the same as the tools I learned in AA, except in AA, you can see them working in other people's lives, and there's a system of accountability that doesn't really exist when you're just talking one-on-one with a therapist. And so I could see people getting better in front of me. I could hear people's stories about how they came back from you know worse quote unquote rock bottoms than I had by far um, and And I could look at recovery actually working in people's lives and um and that is really the key, I think, to any successful program of rec- recovery, whether it's twelve step or you know any other kind of group based recovery. Um, I think it's really important to have those examples in your life of people who um, were at a really low point and got better. You know, I think it's also a matter of taking what you want and leaving the rest. I, um, I didn't, my first sponsor in AA wanted me to stop going to bars. And I talk about this in, in my book. She was really insistent on this idea that, um, and my first treatment center too, on this idea that you need to get rid of all your old friends because they're bad for you well, I didn't drink with friends at the end for the last five years or so I drank alone and in secret. And what I needed was community. And, you know, I have a boyfriend now who drinks, um, he has about half a beer, um, and he's sleepy and he pours it out, which of course, like my sponsor says that's, that's alcohol abuse. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, and it's fine. So, so I, you know, I, like I said, I go to bars, the big book actually says, um, we can go anywhere that normal people can go as long as we have a legitimate reason to be there. And I really believe that I'm not, um, you know, I've heard the, the saying, you know, if you keep going to the barber, you're eventually going to get a haircut. You know, I mean, I, I, I would interpret that in a little bit of a different way. You know, if you if you keep like for me, it's like I don't buy liquor for my house. I mean, I live alone, but I, you know, I cook a lot. I could buy wine to cook with. I don't do that because like, why would I, why would I introduce that into my life? But at the same time, I didn't have to give up all my friends. I didn't have to, um, radically remake my social life so that I could avoid temptation because I think ultimately it's, it's all internal and you can have triggers and some people do really need to avoid triggers. But for me, the motivation is inside myself. And so, um, as long as I am kind of keeping on that right path and just kind of reminding myself every day through thinking about gratitude and thinking about um, the friendships that I have gained back and the trust that I've gained back, there's, there's no good reason for me to go back to drinking. And every example that I have in my life of a relationship or people in recovery that I see, uh, you know, in my my own recovery program every example says it's best that you just stay on this path and don't go back to that old one because you know i still have drinking dreams and i wake up in a sweat because it was especially near the end it was horrible my 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 existence was just survival and pure misery and the hard work of just constantly trying to not be sick and i don't want to go back there and i think um, the, the best, uh, that I can do is be an example to other people. And, you know, and the last thing I'll say is as, as someone who relapsed a lot, I, I want people to know. And one of the messages that I really want to get out, um, to people who are either, Seeking recovery, or in recovery, or know someone who is struggling, is that if you relapse, it really isn't a personal failure of any kind, and um, and it isn't because you failed to do whatever program you're in. It's because you have a disease, and one of the symptoms of that disease, one of the primary symptoms, is relapse. And um, I think if we can frame relapse as being a symptom of the disease of addiction and not a personal failure or a moral failure, we will really change the way, first of all, that we do treatment in this country and in the world, but um, but also a lot more people will recover because they won't see relapse as a reason to just go off the deep end. Um, because you can you can relapse and you can slip, whatever you want to call it, and you can come back. And, um, and I'm living proof of that, and so are a lot of other people.
1: Thanks, Erica. I'm so glad that you made it through. I really am. As you're talking about relapse being a part of the disease. And it absolutely is. We see it all the time. You know, we have to accept that it happens, but how do we not just get comfortable with, well, I'm going to relapse because it's expected of me or it's okay to, or how do we accept it without approving of it? Have you found a way to align it in your mind that makes sense? Well, I mean, I think I,
2: I it's, it's accepting without judgment. Like I don't have judgment for people who relapse. I also know a lot of people who just stopped and never drank or used drugs again. So I don't want to say that it is a good thing. I mean, although every time I did relapse, I, I did end up, you know, learning more because I would then after I relapsed, I would quit again. And, um, and so my book is called quitter. Um, it's not called relapser because I, (laughs) because I, you know, I quit a bunch of times and every single time I quit, there was a reason. And there were tools that I had acquired that enabled me to do that. But I will say every time I relapsed, um, it was horrible. Life was teaching me. I'm just a very slow learner, I guess, because life was teaching me at every single you know, occasion that I relapse that things never get better. They only get worse. And so I don't recommend relapse. I think that if you can quit and not, um, and not drink or use your drug of choice ever again, that is preferable. And in the same way that for me, now that I have five and a half years sober, um, it is preferable for me never, ever to drink, um, alcohol again. And that is, that is my desire. And that is, you know, one day at a time, that's, where I, I hope that I'm headed. So yeah, I mean I, I, I definitely don't I, I just don't think that it's a matter of approval or disapproval. It's with any other relapsing disease, we don't talk about um, you know, uh I mean I guess we do talk with judgment of the diabetic who eats donuts or whatever. Um I don't think that we should. Um and I I I just think that judgment is kind of pointless because it either happens or it doesn't happen and if it happens it is it is in large part because um you know i mean it may be because you exposed yourself to triggers or you weren't doing your program or you got hungry angry lonely tired you know as we say halt but um but you know there is a lot of it that is just really outside our control because it's a it's a deadly brain disease and i think you know in addition to i mean i'm not saying that relapse or, or that treatment programs should not teach about relapse prevention. I think that's incredibly important. And believe me, I mean, as I said, I do a lot of relapse prevention strategies just in my day-to-day life, Um, especially when I'm getting irritable or when I, you know, just feel down. I mean, there, there are practices that I have that I engage in that make me feel better without feeling the need to turn to a substance. But I also think treatment should teach you, you know, if you relapse, um, here's what to do, you know, call somebody, um, get into a detox if you need to, figure out what it was that led up to it and try to figure out how to avoid that in the future or how to mitigate against the way you were feeling that led you to um, to drink or, or use a drug. So while I'm not judgmental, I mean, I wouldn't say relapse is great because it's horrible. I, I, re- I went to rehab and I, um, with the approval of my work, and then I came back and I relapsed and I lost my job. And that job was everything to me. Now, ultimately, I truly do believe that it all worked out for the best in it. And for me, it worked out the way that it had to work out because a lot of things, a lot of good things happened because of losing that job, you know, ironically and unexpectedly. But that um, that isn't to say that I'm glad that I, that I went through all that because I would love to have those five years back.
1: Mm. You know what comes through as you talk about it is compassion. And that's what I think is so... Hard and what's missing for a lot of people when they're stuck in a cycle of relapse is that it's hard to find compassion. It's hard to have compassion for yourself. And it's hard for other people to offer the compassion that they should, (laughs) that the person needs. Because honestly, for people who have someone in their family that's in active addiction or someone in their workplace that's in active
2: addiction, it's kind of annoying. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond annoying. I mean, it's annoying. Yeah, it can be incredibly <laughs> disruptive. I mean, it, you know, I mean, yeah. you, can be, you I, I don't have kids, but you can be a parent and that can be like incredibly traumatic for, you know, so I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, I think that the compassion does also kind of have to come from things like policy and, and treatment centers and places that mm-hmm. are, that are not in your direct immediate family. I, I think yes. it's too much to, for for an individual to ask that you know their mom or their sister or their kids um be compassionate in a specific way because they're all going through their own thing too. But I do think that like a treatment center that is dedicated to treating a disease should have compassionate strategies and that people can learn to be compassionate for themselves as they're going through their own struggles and that you know as a society we can have more compassionate policies toward you know, people with addiction. I mean, I, I write a a lot, um, as you mentioned, um, in your intro about homelessness and about addiction and about, you know, public policy. And one reason, I mean, I work for myself so I can cover basically whatever I want to, that people are interested in reading. And one reason I really focus on, on those issues is because I, I think that a lot of our policies are not compassionate to people, um, who are in active addiction. And I mean, I, when I was in my worst um, addiction uh, phases, I guess I, you know, I didn't have a job, but guess what? I had unemployment. That is not available to someone who is uh, homeless for a long time and is living in a tent. I had a place to live, and when I was about to get evicted, I got an eviction notice on my door from my landlord. I called my mom and I said, "Can I have a thousand dollars?" And my mom said, "You know, very reluctantly." I mean, I describe it in the book; it was a very sad moment because, um, you know, my parents are not, um, you know, somebody I've been dependent on. Um, but she said, yes. And that is like the height of privilege to be able to say, you know, Hey family, I need money and have your family come through. So, um, if I couldn't get it, you know, with all of that and with all of that privilege and all of that support that I had that, you know, was largely invisible to me in some ways. Um, I just, I have so much more compassion for somebody who's living on the street and doesn't have any of those support systems and is still expected to get sober while they're living in a tent experiencing Mm. like daily and minute by minute trauma. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like empathy and compassion is, I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but it is just like, the, the, the biggest, um, my biggest mission in my, um, in my own work life and in my own reporting and, and just kind of in dealing with people who are, who are going through, um, like you said, that, that cycle of relapse now at the same time, I mean, I'm not going to be an enabler of someone I've certainly worked with people who just, you know, we're, we're relapsing a bunch and, you know, we're lying about it. And, As, you know, as alcoholics and addicts, I think we lie a lot because of shame and, um, you know, you don't have to enable people, but it's, it's also, if you've been through it, it's also helpful to kind of look at other people um, in the same way that you, that you try to look at yourself.
1: I feel like that's where recovery groups of, of really any program that you go to when you're sitting in a circle of other people that have been there that's a place where we can make connections and compassion because they are removed from our life and they are just there to support that one piece of our life. And, you know, sometimes you hear... People say, well, we'll love you till you can love yourself again. Yeah. And that is so powerful. And most people don't realize that they need that because the last thing you want when you're isolating and active in your addiction is for other people to know about it or to confront you about it. The idea of someone loving you through it just seems impossible. But it's really such a big part of getting better. And it offers service, too, for the people that are in that circle to help someone by giving them service, service by doing that. Yeah. Um, as you talk about the work that you do now with your blog and your reporting, does it also feed your soul as an act of service beyond being a job and being you know, a line of work that you're passionate about as a writer, does it also help keep you sober to give service by giving voice to a population that doesn't have the, the voice that you're able to bring to their story?
2: You know, you're the first person who's ever asked me that. And the answer is um, absolutely yes. I mean, I, I, you know, I I consider it part of my mission as a writer, but also um, part of my own sobriety um, because showing compassion for people, you know, I, I live in Seattle. Um, I don't know where it's what it's like, um, where you live with um, the, the the homelessness situation. But I mean, we have just thousands and thousands of people living in tents, especially right now during the pandemic with a lot of shelters closed. And I think there is, um, you know, it's been described as compassion fatigue um, for people who are Inconvenient and messy, and and co- who cause you know public um, disorder and problems, and and I feel like there aren't a lot of people in the reporting space who um, not only have compassion for those folks because there certainly are people who have sort of um, uh, a an abstract compassion, but people who feel like they could have ended up there themselves if not for, um, just the circumstances of their life. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at, you know, when I, when I was, um, when I was unemployed and just kind of riding the bus around a lot, what did I do all day? I talked to homeless people, you know, I, um, and I really, I identify with people who end up on the streets and who end up, you know, exhibiting the symptoms of addiction and mental illness and just untreated misery and problems in a way that I think, um, a lot of other reporters, you know, no shade on them, but just can't because they haven't come close to that themselves. And, um, And so for me, I I consider, you know, my writing in some way a service to those people, even if it's not a direct service, like, you know, a handout or, um, or taking someone into my house or being a sponsor of, you know, every individual person I see, it's a, it's a service to, um, to cover them with compassion and as individual people, because everybody that, um, ends up homeless, uh, has an individual story and nobody is born saying, you know, I want to be in the thrall of this addiction that I can't get out of and living in a tent in a rainy city, um, while people spit on me because, uh, because that's what, that's what it's like as far as I can tell. So, um, so yeah, I definitely consider it, you know, not even a service to them, but a service to me also, because, uh, it, it keeps me sober to um to write about people who are struggling. What was the hardest part about writing your memoir? I think it was really delving into a lot of stuff from my past that um I am not comfortable writing about. A lot of I mean you would think that probably you reading the book you would think that it would be describing these really really horrible instances of things that have happened to me or that I have done or public humiliations that, um, that I've been through, but honestly, I had done my, my fourth and fifth steps by that point. And if, um, for those unfamiliar with the fifth step, well, the fourth step is, you know, essentially where you write down your part in all of the, um, resentments that you have and your fifth step is basically talking about them with another person. And once, you know, once I had written down all of that and talked about it, nothing really felt all that humiliating anymore. What was difficult was was talking about, um, you know, my birth mom. I talk about my birth mom in a couple chapters. Um, I didn't know her until I was in my 30s, and I went and found her um, living very close to where my grandparents, um, who raised me until I was seven, um, still live. So um, that was just something we never talked about when I was growing up. And I don't know if this is a Southern thing or if it's just a family thing, but I think there were a lot of things that were secret not because they were like shameful or explicitly secret, but just because we didn't talk about them, and it was just kind of known that you didn't talk about them. And one was the fact that I had this biological mother that um, I had never met, um, except, you know, of course, when I was too young to remember it. And it just never came up in my whole childhood and in my 20s. And by the time you're in your 20s and you haven't talked about something for 25 years, you just you just don't talk about it. So... I, you know that so that was hard to that was hard to write about it was also just hard to write about childhood in general as a writer because um my temptation was to skip forward to the interesting stuff you know and <laughs> uh, and I was kind of always just always in this internal fight with you know and, and and you know a sort of external battle with my editor like just thinking like god this stuff is so boring like who cares um, but it's funny cause people have, have, um, been very responded very positively to some of that stuff. And I'm like, okay, if you say so, <laughs> but, but that part was just as, as, as a writer, really the most tedious and slow part to write, because I don't remember it all super well. And I just kind of assume narratively people want to get to like, okay, but then what happened?
1: had you managed to keep journals even during the times that you were drinking heavily? Because you capture a lot of detail about years of dysfunction. And I I would have expected you to say that that was the hardest part, would be to revisit those, you know, those cycles as, as you say, just waking up and trying to survive the day until you can drink and go back to sleep again. And, um, Staying, uh, staying out of withdrawal. The the work of staying out of withdrawal. Did you keep Did you keep journals during that time, or did you have to like really go back and piece together from from other timelines how it all
2: unfolded? I kept journals um, probably through about two thousand eight nine, and then after that, um, I didn't really. But I will tell you the last, you know, few years of my drinking are really, really vivid to me. I mean, except for the parts that I literally don't remember because I was blacked out. And a lot of those were recreated for me by friends. So when I wasn't sure about how something happened, um, I would typically go to the person, you know, or relevant people and ask them, Hey, did it happen this way? This is how I remember it. Um, what, what was your memory? But, um, Strangely enough, I mean for for like for a drug that robs memory, um, my memory of all of those sort of horrible things that happened is really indelible because it's so tied in with shame and embarrassment and humiliation. I just think those memories tend to stick with you more. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like I said, it wasn't I mean it wasn't easy to write about that stuff, but it came out pretty quickly once I kind of mentally distanced myself from it a little bit. And just said, this is a story that I'm telling about something that happened to me. And it's going to help people to read it. And if I lie, (laughs) you know, or if I sugarcoat it, I mean, this is also like someone was saying to me the other day, it's always good to put um, if you say something smart, um, it's always good to put it in somebody else's mouth. And I didn't do that because I don't think I was saying a whole lot of smart stuff um, between 2008 and 2014. But I knew that if I portrayed myself in a more positive light, um, then I thought it was justified that I would really get slammed for that. So I just kind of was like, you know what, this is a story that I'm telling. If I get too uncomfortable, I can just kind of pretend it's about somebody else, but I have to be honest because if I'm not honest, I'm going to be, um, called out. And even if I am honest, but I'm flattering to myself and I portray myself in a flattering way, I'm going to get called out because there was just, you know, I was harming people and people didn't see me that way. And I didn't see myself that way. So it's not fair to go back and reconstruct it in a way that makes me look good, because that's just that's just false. It's not what happened.
1: One thing that really comes through in your story is that by treating alcoholism as a acute disease and treating it, you know, when the problem becomes so acute that someone needs 30 days of rehab or a medical detox, and then throwing them back out into the world mm-hmm. <laughs> when what they really have is a chronic condition. We have set up this sort of this system and it's a a big, big, big industry that really benefits from churning people quickly through treatment, but not equipping them for long term recovery. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you were really a victim of this in many ways in that you did have so many medical interventions and so many opportunities for treatment that really didn't stick because it was sort of in and out and not the care that you needed at the time. So as you have put this book together what has sort of gelled in your mind as a as an overarching Theme
2: in regard to this? Well, I think if you've gone to treatment um, three times or four times and it's still not, you know, quote unquote working, and I'm talking specifically about 28-day treatment, um, which is the dominant model, I think, in this country still, um, then probably... you're not going to necessarily learn more by going to treatment again. And um, it would maybe be fine if people didn't have lives to live and if treatment was free, but it's not. And so I think at that point you maybe need to, to say, okay, what other options are there for me? Is there recovery coaching? Is there, you know, like I did just kind of giving in and saying, fine, I'll do AA. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, I don't know what it is for each individual person, but I do know that when I, um, was going, I mean, my story is mostly, you know, and, and, and frankly, my medical debt is mostly, um, not because of treatment. Cause I, you know, only, I guess uh, quote put big quotes around that went twice. And I certainly saw people in there that had gone to treatment, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 times. Um, But for me, it was, um, I spent a lot of money on detoxes in hospitals. I would say, you know, the way that I was treated in, in those systems was really dismissively. And essentially, a couple of times they would say, here's a social worker. And the social worker would say, do you want to go to 28 day treatment? And I would say, no, thank you. Goodbye. I don't know what the holistic solution is to that because um, I'm not a medical professional and I'm not really qualified to say what works for everybody, but, but I do know that um, when people cycle through these treatment programs and the only prescription when they quote unquote fail is go back to treatment and try harder, that feels to me like a system that is profiting off of failure. I don't want to discourage anybody from going to treatment, you know, in particular, I think treatment for, for people with really, really serious physical problems and, for example, with, with opiate addictions, which take a really long time to withdraw from um, and kind of get your brain back, it, it can be literally saving. but... I would like to see a different kind of system where we save people's lives and then continue to engage them in a way that allows them to exist in the world because treatment is typically a really closed system and it teaches people, I mean, at least in my two experiences and what I've heard through, you know, knowing other people in recovery and through my reporting, it teaches you that the problem with you is that you aren't disciplined enough and you aren't following the right steps and you aren't following the right rules. And if you just do that, you'll be fine. And it cuts you off from the world. And it says you are not ready to go outside and you are not ready to talk to other, to people from the outside. And we have to take away your cell phone and all these things, a better treatment system I think would allow you to be in the world and to um, re-engage with the regular world. Cause that's what you're going to have to do in your real life and have some accountability for sure, but maybe not profit off of essentially providing a hotel for you for 28 days, you know, a very fancy medically equipped hotel. Um, And, and, and in fact, you know, treatment centers are slowly moving away from that model, but you know, I think the faster that can happen, the better.
1: Now I'm very self-conscious as I talk to you that I am a non-professional interviewing a professional journalist. (laughs) And I'm curious how you would interview yourself, and I'm sure you're doing tons of interviews right now promoting your book. So what question do you wish someone would ask you? What question
2: would you ask yourself and, and why at this point? I mean... I'm going to give you a journalist answer rather than like the, the answer of a person being interviewed, because of course, like a person being interviewed generally wants the question that they're most prepared to answer. But I think, um, I think the interesting question that, um, that people don't ask, ask a lot is why, why did you relapse? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I hesitate to even say that. I mean, because because you can hear the hitch in my voice because that's a really hard question, but, um, but I do kind of, um, I like exploring that question because I think it's the, 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 the answer to that for anybody is like, is part of the solution for themselves and for other people. Because um, if we're going to relapse um, and addicts, uh, as I said, I mean, that, that is something that happens for people with addiction, figuring out why that happens is um, I think more important than uh writing down a set of triggers in advance before it has happened that you think will be your, you know, precipitating factors and then, um, and, and only looking at that side of it.
1: Uh, So did you come to the answer to that question as you wrote the book? I mean, I'm sure if I asked you at the time, as you said, well, the vodka was in my cart. (laughs) and That's why I relapsed. (laughs) Um, As you you wrote this book, I'm sure that the answers to that question became more clear. So what have you learned in regard to that?
2: I think that when I relapsed, it was always um, this process of forgetting um, why I decided to get sober in the first place you know um i mean because because the actual event was never very dramatic um and so i think i think it was just that i didn't stay on top of my um my gratitude and the reasons that uh life was better sober i think i didn't stay conscious of that and i think like literally just writing down gratitude lists, which is, which is something I did in early recovery early sobriety and that I'm actually doing right now um, because of uh, isolation and, you know, just the kind of stuff we're all going through with this pandemic. Um, I think it's just, it's really important to stay on top of why you got sober in the Mm -hmm. first place and not just the bad things that were happening beforehand, but the good things that have happened since you got sober and like, you know, it's be, being sober is not always a picnic. I mean, you still have to live your life and stuff still goes wrong. And, um, and sometimes it can just seem like, oh gosh, this would be so much easier with a glass of wine or whatever. Yeah. I think, it, I think the reason ultimately that I relapsed is that I forgot why I got sober in the first place.
1: Did it take you a while to accept that moderation isn't an option for you? I feel like it's a fantasy that, a lot of people keep returning to thinking it'll be different. And I feel like I can hear in your voice an awareness that you don't really have the capacity for moderation. So to return to drinking is a return to the experience that you had, you know, the the low level bottom experience is what you'd be returning to.
2: Yeah. Is that true for you? I don't yeah. think that would happen right away. I think it would. I think it would happen more quickly than I, um, would like to tell myself in those fantasies that I used to have about being able to moderate. I mean, yeah, every, I think every, um, well, okay. I don't want to generalize. I think a lot of drinkers in particular think that, they can return to normal, quote unquote, normal drinking because um, they can see everybody else around them doing it. And it just, you know, why wouldn't I be able to do that? I'm a strong person. I'm a smart person. I just have to do it differently this time. And so when I um, first started trying to quit, I went to um, a moderation specialist who is this wonderful, wonderful therapist who actually taught me a ton of great um, cognitive behavioral tools about talking back to my negative thoughts and the fact that I can't control other people and all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally um, he was there to help me see if I could moderate. And, and the fact is that just, that just the way that my personal brain chemistry and personality and everything else that makes up me works is I can't. And it took, it did take a long time to learn that. And even when I thought I had learned it, I really hadn't learned it because I still had this fantasy like in the back of my head, and and like and still do today. Honestly, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Like that's kind of where the fantasy is now. Like, wouldn't it be nice? But it's not true. Society, you know, just every you know every corner you go around, there's a message that you should be drinking. That everything would be better if you just had a drink. That good experiences we would be better. That you could get through things, and you could get through loneliness, and. Um, depression and isolation with um, Zoom happy hours and quarantinies and whatever um, it may be. So it's really hard to resist those messages, even if, you know, I don't necessarily notice um, the way I did, you know, when I first got sober. Um, one thing that really irritated me or that, that I found um, a little bit difficult to deal with was like, oh my God, they're coming out with all these new types of alcohol. And, you know, I guess this is like probably true across generations, but I mean, I remember when they came out with like canned rosé and I was like, oh man, that is such a good idea for the beach. And, um, and I just felt kind of like, oh, I don't get to participate in that. But the fact is like, why is that being marketed to me? You know, why, why is it that I, when I go online, you know, the, there the are liquor ads being targeted to me. Uh, and I think you have to like really examine that and, and realize that some of that fantasy is actually external and it's being pushed on you. So, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's still something that I, I wouldn't say struggle with, but am aware of. And, um, and it took a long time not to struggle with it. And I think that's very natural.
1: That's such a good point. Well, your book is great. I enjoyed it immensely, and it's been wonderful talking to you. How can
2: our listeners find you and get your book and learn more about you? Um, You can go, uh, you can find out all um, the information and links by going to my Twitter. Um, That's where I'm most active, and that's at Erica C. Barnett. Um, My book is available on Amazon, on bookshelf.org, and um, at your local independent bookstore. Um, You can just order directly from there. So I'm pretty easy to find um on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you so much for your
1: time today. Thank it's been you so great much. talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, be sure to check out Erica's book, especially if you or someone you know has struggled with relapse. I really think that you are gonna find a lot of strength and hope in this book. And I also am really glad that you spend your time with the Bubble Hour week after week because we are all in this together. That's it for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care.
0: I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on. just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your